I'm Dr. Jamie Grant. I'm a bossy femme bottom, and this is Just Sex, Mapping Your Desire. I'm here today with one of my beloved collaborators, Ignacio Rivera, a renowned sex educator and activist whom I've been blessed to know and work with for the past decade. Welcome, Ignacio. Hi, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could introduce yourself, as we do in the podcast, by giving us three descriptors of your desire and then any other identity markers or things about you that is really important for our listeners to know. Okay. Uh, My name is Ignacio Hutiashaiti Rivera. And three uh, desire markers are solo polyamorous, I am kinky, and I am a top-heavy switch. Mm, Top-heavy switch, lovely. And anything else you want uh, our listeners to know about you? I am under the trans spectrum. I say that I am a transformer because I'm more than meets the eye. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I'm I'm gender fluid. Um, I think that's very important for people to know. Uh, My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I've been an activist all my life. I'm a mother. I strongly identify as a mother. Uh, I am an abueli, and is my gender-neutral uh, term for grandparents in Spanish. Yeah, I'll leave it with that. Lovely. <laughs> so, Ignacio, you and I have been desire mapping for about 10 years now, which yeah. is crazy. I know. And, you know... Uh, we piloted the workshop at the Creating Change Conference, uh, I think really about 11 years ago, maybe 12, and um, one of the ways at that first, very first one that I thought, this is really going to be something and it's going to work, is because you've been a sex educator for so long already, I mean, you already had such a reputation, and after we did the first workshop, you were like, oh, I really got something out of that, that and I thought, Really? <laughs> and this this must work because someone who has so much knowledge and so much practice to feel like it's moving you along, um, this must be worth doing. Mm. So I wonder if you could just uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about you know what's happened for you on your desire map in ten years or what what's the process brought to you? Mm. I, I, starting from the first time that we did it, what I liked a, about it is through my own like journey um, of sexual liberation of, of what I've called it um, one of the things I often say is like you know we got to look at patterns is the thing that I always say mm-hmm. looking at patterns um, my past relationships and things and you've created a model that I have you know you really ask specific questions about these patterns and looking at specific relationships or specific uh, feelings we had and so that's why I got so much out of it, because for one, you really hone in on those feelings, mm. right? And then two, you do it in a community way, because I was one of those people that I would hang out with my friends and want to talk about sex in this really communal way, mm. and they thought I was crazy, uh-huh. um, because I thought, I just wanted to talk about it and see what other people were doing, and it was so private. And I think as a survivor, um, I, I didn't... I wanted to take it out of that private secret space and I mm. wanted to talk about it publicly. So I think in terms of sexual liberation, it made me feel so alive and good to have a room that was like a full, I think it was over hundreds of people, people. Right. you know, like talking, laughing, crying and showing emotion like openly about, you know, um, what desire meant to them or what they thought desire meant to them. So for me, 
it's a continuation of that process of uh, looking at patterns and thinking about who I am, how have my desires shifted, and what that has to do with my upbringing, my parents, my um, everything. You know, so it is really a, a, it is acts a, a really intense, intentional process mm -hmm. of looking at ourselves and our lives and our surroundings it's not as um you know easy and as simple and as fantastical as we like to think uh desire is we make it so simple and cookie cutter and we and what you do and i think in a lot of instances what we do is make it as beautifully complex as it is mm -hmm. um which makes it better right yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah gosh there's just always surprises every time we do it i mean mm -hmm. you look at someone i look at someone even after all these years we look at people we make so many assumptions about oh yeah what their desire is what's mm -hmm. possible for them what they could possibly want yes and over and over again when we do this in community it just busts yeah. all of that i keep remembering specific things that people have said yeah. like once we went into a school and i remember it was a bunch of frat boys these white frat boys, of course, I already had my thoughts on what these boys were going to talk about. And this one guy, uh, I think he was a basketball player or a football player or something, and he's there looking all jockey and everything, and he starts talking, and he talks extremely intimately about remembering a time when he was a kid, a young boy even, like maybe 12 years old or something, remembering a time when he was he played with this other young boy the same age, and how they were so intimate with one another. I think they played, they even masturbated together. Yeah, they masturbated together. together. I remember this too. And I was in shock that he shared such an intimate detail and actually talked about how much he enjoyed it and how loving of a memory that was for him. And I wanted to cry when I heard that. I was like, that is the most vulnerable thing I've ever heard a cis heterosexual guy say in front of a room full of people. <laughs> because the first thing you would think is a fear of being called a homosexual, yes. right? <laughs> yes. And I was so impressed uh, uh, by that and also impressed by the reaction of other people because it gave permission for other people to be like, oh, actually. Right. I, <laughs> I have a story to tell. Yes. I remember that one too. Yeah. Um, we were at this little college in the Midwest and we were in actually a small class. It was like a psychology class. And when he told that story and when I remember the outcome, the reason he was telling it was that he hated the campus hookup culture. Mm. And he said, what I realize in remembering this intimacy between me and one of my best friends, and we jerk each other off and watch movies together, and I felt so much love for him, we were so close, is that I need to feel that closeness with a woman. I need her to be my friend. I need her to be someone I can rely on before I have sex. Mm. And that's why I hate hookup culture. And I thought, mind blown, mind blown. It's like, first of all, dude, this is the bravest share. I don't remember. This is the bravest share I've heard in such a long yes. time in terms of disrupting cishet masculinity. Yeah. And that he could extrapolate that from that. Not, and then, not even feel like, am I gay? No, that, no, that no. He, that wasn't what he was talking right, about. Right. It was like, oh, this is why right. I fucking hate this kind of sex on this right. campus. And I was like, Dude. experience was so normal and that was totally fine. Right. And I, that was loving. And I want to feel that same thing with the woman. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> And then all the people in the class are like, hmm, hmm, yes, yeah. yes. And then everybody starts talking, and the two of us were just sitting there. 
my God. I, I also remember a time when actually I shared something that I was terrified to share, and it was at Creating Change. It was on a panel once, and this was sharing um, stuff around my CSA, and I think a lot of times uh, child, child sexual abuse, so I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse and incest, and that's a lot of my work doing through the HEAL project. Um, I do to prevent child sexual abuse and work with adult survivors on healing. I'm a part of the BDSM and kinky community. I've been a part, a practitioner for 20 years now. Right. And I am one of those people that finds great uh, healing through BDSM and age play, consensual age play, um, as a form of therapeutic stuff. And that doesn't work for everyone. For some people, that is not something that right. works That's well at all. <laughs> and if it's something that people are interested in, I would say that they should be having uh, multiple forms of support um, as well. They should investigate whether right. that's a good thing. So I'm not promoting it. I'm just right. uh, saying this is my avenue of healing. A part of that is I was kind of interrogating the relationships that I kind of desired and the, the fantasies that I was having. And one of these relationships was this role playing of brother, big brother, little brother. Big brother, brother, little brother stuff. Right. And I was like, why is this? Because, you know, I didn't have this with my brother. My brother was not my abuser. I love my brother very much, but nothing ever happened. And I was like, what is this thing? Why am I, you know, but uh, in this interrogation, I am realizing that my, my sister was my abuser, but I ran to my brother for protection mm -hmm. a lot of protection and i saw him as kind of i wanted him to be my savior and so i felt like in this role play i was looking for protective men to be my older brother but within that it was a sexual component so it was this loving a deeper thing and then in that panel i i said you know i was really confused because um I love my brother, and I think I realized that for a long time I had a crush on my brother. brother. And I was terrified of saying that because mm -hmm. I thought people were going to be they like, just, that is horrible. What are you talking about? This is against the law. You know? right, right. And I, was like, I didn't do anything. Right, right, right. I'm just saying I really had a crush on my brother for many, many yes. years. Um, and I know where that comes from, you know, like right. I, there was a lot of stuff, around, you know, I could see it going back. I was uh, sexually abused by my sister for many years. And afterwards, I think there was a line of people that came to me and confessed to me how many people were sexually attracted to, masturbated to, were crushing on or in the past had crushes on family members, members. and were so, felt so guilty and ashamed of those feelings. And then I said, it, it makes absolute sense that we would. These are the people that we're around all the time, <laughs> that we learn things from. Right. And were protective of us right. when we were in, like, you know, incredibly vulnerable uh, and, and surviving violence, right. right? I mean, I think that's what we find so much in the workshop, that the imprint of the various kinds of violence. And I mean, I don't know anybody in a workshop. I don't know anybody in this culture that doesn't form their sexuality surviving some kind of right. violence, right? And, and many of us have extreme situations, especially child sexual assault survivors, mm -hmm. right? So we're forming ourselves in this soup mm -hmm. and then we're we're making lemonade, I think. Right. You know, we're right. trying to make our way out of it. And I remember when you did that share because I stopped breathing, right? Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, because I felt very protective of you. And I thought if one person mm -hmm. raises their hand and starts to come at you, I'm ready. Right. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm facilitating this thing and you're sharing something is breaking such silence and breaking such ground here. I knew there were tons of people in the room 
who are going to feel incredible relief. Mm -hmm. And we're going to feel like, oh my God, someone has finally said this out loud, right? Mm -hmm. I've spent my whole life thinking, I can never say this out loud about myself. And now someone has done it. And as you said, there was a line out the door to you at the end of that workshop. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted to leave. Everybody was like, oh my God. But, But yeah, I mean, it just shows you the power of the various systems of violence against us that you can't say right right yeah that here you are the survivor and we can't say but yeah. you know what's happening for us in our bodies around our desire around our sexuality as we're trying to become whole yeah you've been such a powerful presence in the workshop for 10 years around doing Thank that I'm, i always can't wait <laughs> until you tell your next story and every year it's something new there's a new place on your path and it is creating such community. Mm. It's creating such possibility for people to go out from the workshop and have conversation that they never thought they could have. Mm. So I just give I, I look forward to it every year, really. And this is, this is I, I continue to say that this is not work. Like, this is literally a part of my life. Like, right. I am constantly thinking about this. And not only in the context of my relationships desire in that way but like how it also transforms into my relationships with you know my child and um, communication and all of that you know this this is there's a ripple effect because our relationships with our family of origin ripples fam our relationships with our lovers and our partners friends. and our friends our and co-workers our ch- everything everything I mean, that is the value of it. Again, so much, I would say this all the time, in the movement, this gets so shunted to the side as this this is a private mm-hmm. thing that doesn't really matter to any of us queers, right? It's right. like we're, we're marching on to, you know, assimilation and marriage and, you know, city hall or whatever. And this, right. like, we should not be talking about this. But as you say, I mean, I think it's been such a resilience-building practice for all of us to come together at least once a year. I mean, yeah. I think of this roving community of people we have that are creating conversations. It's just incredible. So anyway, <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have a story today that's on your mind. If, if anything has been coming up lately on your desire map, or if perhaps in this past year, I mean, I don't know exactly when this one will air, but we're just post-New Year's and think, you know, mm-hmm. we're in that kind of evaluative period of like, oh, this year has been like this. And I just really want to know what's on your mind. Yeah, so many things I've been thinking about. I haven't really examining uh, my desires a lot this coming year. Uh, I've been saying these past two years have been challenging with um, loss and getting older and chronic pain mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, evaluating yeah, what desire looks like for me right now because there's been a shift. And, and also, you know, PTSD, that good old thing, you know, the gift thing. that keeps on giving. So, <laughs> so thinking about that, but uh, I think what has really been becoming clear for me and uh, my desire has been and I think we talked a little bit about it last night has been uh, a very clear separation for me uh, what relationships mean for me and what sex and relationships are for me and that is that I desire a connective anchoring loving supportive a relationship with someone that is not anchored in any sexual relationship. It could happen, but right. it's not necessarily It's not the, the primary basis. thing. Yeah, not in, in any way, shape, or form, which actually I do have. I have a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful person in my life that I've been with for 14 years, and that sex for me 
And I know this has to do with uh, my trauma. Mm-hmm. The sex for me is a release. It's an activity. And sometimes it's a creative outlet mm-hmm. that has a time limit that I do and then I leave. And that sometimes uh, sex is something that brings me to people. And if the mental, emotional, or spiritual connection is strong enough, I can, I will stay, but the sex eventually will go away. Mm-hmm. Because sex doesn't serve the purpose for me because that is not the thing. My desire, and I finally realized it because for the longest time, sex was the thing that I knew how to do. It's interesting as a survivor, you know, right. that's the thing that I wanted to do the best because that's the thing that I had to learn how to do the best. I had to, that's the thing that people would love me for. Sure. And then what do I become? A sex educator, you know, I <laughs> learn everything about right. it. Um, but because I wanted to be empowered and I wanted to know these things, right? But and at the end of the day, I do know these things. I love these things. I still feel empowered by these things because my safety was taken away at such a young age. Right. That safety that I have with my person of 14 years is of the utmost of what I need. And the sex is wonderful, yes. But I choose when I have that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's become so much clearer to me. So much more clearer. Right. And that separation enables you to be really present and have joy and creativity and interest there. Yes. And then sort of your familial home space, it's just not really an active space for yes and do you have any um interesting things that you're learning or playing with in your desire right now because of really finally settling on this separation is there anything bubbling up or anything you want to share or an event that happened recently or a thing or a, a connection i think i'm opening up my circle and who i am allowing myself to play with actually I had such a small circle and who I said I, I would play with because um, because I was thinking in terms of relationships and all these things. And now it's about play, play partners, you know, friends with benefits, yeah. fuck buddies. So the, the range is much wider. I'm open to cis, you know, cis men. I'm open to a lot of things. And that I wasn't before. Mm-hmm. I was very fearful, uh, you know, of... Of that, I haven't had the best uh, experiences, but 2020, <laughs> I've decided that um, I am going to walk through the fear because mm-hmm. it has stunted me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to, you know, smartly, but walk through it. And so that's what's changed. Uh, a bigger net. Um, I am using apps now because I don't go out to bars because I am sober and I just don't like bars. Yeah, so I'm making myself a little more available in that sense and I am also making myself a little bit more vulnerable because one of the things that I was doing in my sex was my my BDSM because I am the mostly the top these days. It served me well. It was safe because I, although the the, this communication there and the submissive um, says their boundaries and I follow that rule and right. those rules as the top you know we agree how I kind of navigate that so it gives you maximum agency yes yes I have agency through that and 
And also uh, another pattern that I found with myself is that I absolutely partnered with people who needed a little bit of education and that was absolutely about power. I put myself in a position of power right. because I wanted to be in power because I was afraid to be controlled again. Right. Uh, and I came to terms with that, you right. know. Um, I am thinking about going back uh, to being submissive again. I, I'm a switch, but I, I want right. to feel that release again. I need to feel that vulnerability again. And in the past, it was only with uh, partners, people that I loved, people that I trusted. And so that's a whole other realm for me. What would it look like to be vulnerable with someone um, that I'm at a play party with right. and just decide to you know, submit to or bottom to? I don't know. So it's something that I'm going to test out and see if it will transform me or if I hate it. But I'm willing to take that chance to have new experiences. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Really came up for me when you're talking about was um, play parties. Mm -hmm. You've been such a trailblazer and a creator of spaces around play parties, which you know our listeners may or may not know about. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about mm -hmm. you know what it's been like. I know that one of your reasons for getting into it was that BDSM spaces and kink spaces were so white dominated. Mm -hmm and very cis and very het dominated and you know sort of wanting to create spaces and I, I think this is so important that so many of us feel just constrained by the existing sex culture wherever we find ourselves whatever mm -hmm. community we live in and we're like oh the sex culture here sucks and i have no place in it and mm -hmm. i think you've been someone who said the sex culture sucks here, and I'm going to create something different. So, can you talk a little bit about yes, that? Yes, yes. That was like 20-something years I ago know, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, it's when, at first, I started Shades of Poly because I wanted to start a poly group because I was checking out the poly groups in New York, and they were mostly uh, cis men, white, and I wanted to meet other people, people of color, women, and... So I started a group, and that was good for a little while, and trying to do outreach to folks. So literally, I was like out there talking to people and say, hi, um, I'm this, and I'm Polly. And they're like, what? That's a white thing. And then I would talk to them about it, give them a card, and say, you should come to my group. And I was out every night like talking to people and getting them right. to come. That soon turned into the first play party I threw from that group, and like... 50 people came to the first one. It was a great hit. And then after that, I started doing regular play parties. So I started doing um, the play party named Desire, um, Afternoon Delight, the play party Fuck It, and Poor Play. All of them uh, served a different purpose for different levels of players. And so my what I wanted to do was create a space that was truly multiracial, um, at first, it was only POC because um, I wanted to just create a safe space for people of color so that they wouldn't be fetishized and that it was a place that it was affordable and that it wasn't in a dungeon because people were very just not comfortable in dungeon spaces. So the first play party was called Touch. That's what it was called. And it what had nothing to do with sex. It was literally kissing, massaging, and if you wanted to touch yourself, other people could watch. So it was not even touching other people. Oh, awesome. That was it. And that was great. People loved that. And then the next one was 
the play party named Desire that was for queer people, uh, queer women and all trans people. And that was a play party. And then uh, Fuck It was all trans people, all queer people. So that was wonderful, great mix. So that was like anyone could come for that one. Uh, and so we just did different, uh, some of them were, you know, uh, dress up, theme partied, and right. and it was all a uh, sliding scale, and it was all in my house. Like, I would just organize everything, people would come to my house, and it was amazing because every time I would do the party was once a month. Um, I would say anywhere from 25 to 50 people would come, and about... 80% of the people that would come were always newbies, never had been to a play party before. And we would always do an opening and, you know, maybe do a little example about how to negotiate and all of the things, talk about safety. Have, Set uh, your ground rules everything and your tone for the party. Yes, everything. Say where the the dental dams and the condoms and everything and um, what's the universal safe word and talk about alcohol consumption and ev all of the things. And um, we go around and ask people, tell us your play name, because people don't have to say their real name, play name, pronoun, you know, one thing you'd love to do today. Yeah. So people go around and usually the 80% that are newbies would be like, well, you know, I'm just here to watch. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> just favorite. here to watch, which has always made me laugh. <laughs> Eighty percent would be the first, first people in a gangbang, <laughs> and what I loved about it would be afterwards. Um, I pride in this, you know, that they would always say, "Thank you so much because you created a space that was so comfortable, so inviting. It felt so safe to me that I was able to let go and just enjoy myself and just do what I needed to do." And I'm so happy that I was able to provide that for 20 years in New York. And then mm -hmm. afterwards, I did a traveling play party called Foreplay, which was really um, great. And then I've mentored about five or six people, Canada and Berlin and California and London, um, to create their own POC-focused play parties. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be starting up some new ones. I'm showing some folks to create a site. So I think it's important for people to know how to create their own private or, you know, play parties because it creates that culture of communal desire that it's not private, you know, like it's not this scary, shameful thing that you can, you know, share desire and love together, that it's a beautiful thing, it's fun. You can and, create and, safety. Yes, and you can create safety that you can do it in the right way that it doesn't have to uh, be this drunken thing that happened and say, oh my God, Oh, what I happened? can't believe we did that. Exactly. It could be like, wow, we had a great time last yeah. night and nothing bad happened. Yeah. Right? No, I love it. I mean, I think you've just made such an important contribution. I mean, invaluable, indelible. And I'm thinking about when we went to South Africa, actually, mm -hmm. and we did a mapping workshop for the Gender Dynamics Conference, which was oh, trans. Yes, yes. It was all trans folks from like 23 different countries in mm -hmm. Africa and their uh, allies. There were some allies in the room. But it was, you know, I'd say 90% trans. And I remember when you shared, you said something about one of the, the lies about trans men and trans masculine people is that they can never then be receivers, right? Mm -hmm. And they everybody's got to be tops and like that they, they can never think about their own pleasure around, you know, their bodies mm -hmm. again and genitals and, you know, how they have to come. There's like these strict rules right. to become a man. 
And I just remember, like, I felt like I was looking out at the audience and heads were exploding because, because they were thinking about you as such a, a you know, a leader in the community, yes. right? And then it was like, it was like this sense of permission. Yes. And then you had a play party that yes. which I did not go to, <laughs> but I heard about, but it was just like fucking liberation. This is what I'm in the movement for. Mm-hmm. All I could think about after we left was... The seeds of that everywhere. Because here's all these now trans yeah. leaders going back to their communities and all these different places saying, you know what? Trans men can have pleasure however they fucking exactly. want to. And if you don't like it, you don't you know, you can go find another, yeah. you know, person. Yes. Right? That to me is what we're here for. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my queer my my queer movement. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. I mean, really. I, 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 if if you could look on the map of the ripples of your work over the years, I mean, man. Just being you. Ditto <laughs> to you two. Just the incredible. same. I can't wait to see what more we do together, though. Shit. <laughs> Me, too. Me too. Is there anything else you want to say to our people as we go, as we as we move into twenty twenty? Hmm. Well, I mean, the same. I look forward to twenty twenty this year uh, for more work, um, more community uh, stuff around desire, about prevention. Those two t- things together because they're not together. exclusive. Right. Right? And the work that we are going to be doing, I'm, I'm looking forward to that brainstorming session because there's more really amazing things to come um, for this work. It's the time. It is the time to be doing more of this um, and getting money for it. <laughs> money, money, money. Manifest right. that shit. Manifest. Manifest. That shit. <laughs> right. Well, I love you so much. I love you too, honey. <laughs> And now it's time for da 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 definition of the day. Ignacio brought us some interesting words to think about in this episode, so I thought I'd start with one. Solo polyamorous. A person of any gender or sexual orientation who pursues multiple partners in sex and love with no hierarchy. Solo polyamorous people center themselves as the hub of the wheel of their love and family structures, with their beloveds fanning out as rich, vibrant spokes on that wheel. Other kinds of polyamorous love and family structures may create primary and secondary partnership structures that may prioritize the allocation of time, resources, and family life with a primary partner according secondary or tertiary partners' remaining energies and attentions. By contrast, the solo poly person prioritizes the self and constructs the wheel of beloveds accordingly. Solo polyamorous. And the next term is a term I hear a lot in solo poly community and conversation, and that is relationship escalator relationship escalator. In traditional dating and mating structures, the relationship escalator describes a series of common steps to becoming partners or family, such as dating, gaining trust, growing close, becoming sexual, defining relationship, making commitments, moving in together, getting married, and then in some cases having children. In solo polyamorous relationships, intimacy grows in the absence of a relationship escalator, which is to say 
two or more people may build increasingly intimate and loving relationships without the intent or expectation of defining the relationship, making commitments, getting married, and or having children. In solo poly world, there is no relationship escalator. Hey, we're going to take a little break from the show to let you know about my fantastic sponsors. First, Grinder for Equality, a global human rights program leveraging the power of our social and sexual connections for LGBTQ liberation rights and safety around the world. Also, I'd like to thank Elizabeth Scott, a longtime Desire Mapping fan who took the workshop over 10 years ago, a feminist philanthropist based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And finally, the Freeman Foundation, also one of my long-term supporters, a foundation that centers the power of the erotic in LGBTQ liberation work. Thanks, everyone. Finally, it's time for question of the day. Perhaps, like Ignacio, some of your desires, fantasies, and crushes have formative roots in surviving violence as a child or a young adult or at some other point on your sex and desire journey? If so, my question of the day for you is two-part. First, how has my fear or shame prevented me from considering or acknowledging certain desires? Let's say that one again. How has my fear or shame prevented me from considering or acknowledging certain desires? And second, what might my sexuality and my life be like if I claimed and celebrated this desire? Thanks for listening. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please head over to iTunes and give us a zillion stars. Send a link to your friends. Talk us up. If you'd like to respond to the show or stay connected, find us on social media under Just Sex Podcast and Desire Mapping. And if you have questions for me about your desire map or comments, you can email me at justsexpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.